You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is your host, Claudia Shambaugh on Ask a Leader. We'll be back in a minute. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, or the California Board of Supervisors. We'll be right back with Ask a Leader. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. We are so fortunate to have what we have going on this morning today, and so glad that you're with us. Today, um, with the solemn week of commemorations, testimonials, updates on personal narratives, it seemed like an important gesture to you would be to explore, consider with thoughtful people in our community, where we go from here into the next 10 years beyond September 11th. Certain trends are already becoming set. We're adjusting to new norms. Some opportunities have been squandered. So what, we, <clears throat> what do we learn from this, and what might, me, mix, might, might we expect in the future? Excuse me. Today, my guests are political science professor Cecilia Lynch, economist Stergios Skaperdis, and African Methodist Episcopal Episcopal Minister Reverend Mark Whitlock. The first half of the program, Professor Lynch will examine with her colleague Professor Scapertis um, what will the socioeconomic circumstances. And then in the second half, Professor Lynch will stay with us to take up with Reverend Mark Whitlock the spiritual realm. I'm glad that you are all a part of this reflective program today. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My first guest, as promised, are Professors Cecilia Lynch and Stergios Caperdas. Cecilia Lynch is a professor of political science at UC Irvine and is the director of the Global Peace and Conflict Studies, also known as GPACs, a well-established forum that meets Thursday afternoons during the school year, presenting distinguished guests from around the world. Professor Lynch works on religion and ethics in international affairs, social movements, and civil society organizations, and interpretive quality methods in social science research. She is the winner of 1999 Furness Award for Best First Book on International Security from Mershon Center for International Security. She's co-winner of the 1998-99 Myrna Bernath Award from the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations, both for... Um, Beyond Appeasement, Interpreting Interwar Peace Movements in the World's uh, uh, Politics. And she's received an Andrew Mellon New Directions Postdoctoral Fellowship. In 2006 to 2009, she's received one for research on Islamic and interfaith religious ethics in world crises. That's why she's here today. My other guest is Stergios Caperdas, professor of economics at UC Irvine. He was born in Greece and received all his higher education in the United States. He's currently working on the Oxford Handbook of the Economics of Peace and Conflict. 
Professor Skapertis is affiliated with UCI Center for the Study of Democracy, Global Peace, and Conflict Studies, as aforementioned, uh, with Cecilia Lynch's introduction. He's also affiliated with the Center for the Study of Civil Wars at the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, Norway, and the European Union Network on Polarization and Conflict. He's consulted on, been consulted on the problem of civil wars and conflict for the World Bank, among other distinguished international entities. Welcome to the show, Professors Cecilia Lynch and Sergio Scopertis. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. Oh, we're all together. This is one long-awaited gathering, I must say, to all the listeners, all how many of you out there. Now, um, unlike, let's just start with this question. There's a lot of ways to cover the socioeconomic impact in the present and what we can possibly project into the next 10 years. Let's start with the first the Unlike the first attack on the World Trade Center that was in 1993, uh, the response to subsequent attacks, like on the USS Cole, the the um, ship uh, in 2000, the year 2000, and in 9/11, 2001, that um, the the previous response on the WTC in 93 uh, was more about a legal challenge. Now. The subsequent attacks are more about war. And I would like for us to talk about today those political and economic ramifications. Um, Cecilia, do you want to take up that up to some point extent first? Professor uh, Lynch sure. to us. First of all, I want to point out that while the ramifications in this country of um, 2001, as opposed to the earlier attacks, um, clearly put us much more on a war footing. For some other areas of the world, it was already war, um, which uh, caused a lot of grievances. So I would say, for example, the uh, 1998 bombings of uh, U.S. embassies in uh, Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, for example, was what began the U.S.-East Africa security initiatives. Um, and so if you're in East Africa, you would see uh, the heavy hand of um, cooperation between the U.S. and those governments' uh, militaries coming down in the late 90s. And I think that in, so we just do need to keep in mind that, you know, that has happened in, in other areas of the world prior to 2001. Nevertheless, I absolutely agree with you that 2001 was a huge turning point in that for us, it for the U.S., it seemed to um, mark vulnerability and um, that we weren't isolated from these kinds of things that had always happened, so it seemed, in other parts of the world, at least for the past 50 years. And as we know, that resulted in a huge kind of crisis of confidence and reassertion or attempted reassertion of U.S. might in the world, putting us all on this war economy, war um, ideology, war everything. Well, and the, the shifting to that the war uh, approach, uh, did that also play a large role in how our interests, our um, conduct, our moral democratic conduct was perceived in around the world? I think that it had already been a problem, but yes, certainly with things like Guantanamo, with um, things like the targeting, uh, much greater targeting of Muslim organizations in this country and abroad, um, that a lot changed at that point. I'll let um, Professor Scopertis talk about the economic ramifications. Oh, there's so many, um, too. Yes go, yes, go ahead, Professor Lynch. 
Um, but I do think that, yes, obviously this uh, resulted in um, a huge uh, question of confidence. It also resulted in a lot of mixed messages coming out of this country um, regarding the rest of the world. There is a real yearning, I would argue, to return to the non-globalized world, in a sense, uh, people's um, sort of perception that, that the U.S. could do whatever it wanted before 9-11. Um, and we see from the top down, from the highest levels of the Bush administration on down, that there's still this yearning, um, or that there has been this yearning, and I think in the in the current campaigns, we also see a return to wanting to, to return to a black and white um, situation, a situation where we can typecast people very easily. Um, and yet, um, we can talk about this a little bit more, but I think one of the things that we've begun to learn in fits and starts, but not nearly enough, is that we are part of this globalized world, that we can't ignore it, and that it's much more complex than uh, many people want to um, deal with, want to, want to believe um, that people do want to see um, this, the entire situation from 9-11 to the, president, to the present as a question of us versus them. But in fact, um, it's not a question of us versus them. And that's something we still have to learn. Uh, Professor Scopertus, I, there, I do want to answer any of that directly before we, we talk in full, full swing about economic costs. Mm -hmm. did, uh, did you want to, uh, I don't well, know if you had any comments that, uh, initially to direct well, to... Well, just that, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, this, uh, this uh, war footing that Cecilia is uh, talking about, discussing, uh, this war mentality uh, creates even more costs than you would have otherwise. I mean, as an economist, I look at costs and benefits and everything. And, exactly. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's... Uh, rhetoric in some ways, but it's, uh, it's true. That's uh, what happens. It uh, reinforces uh, cycles of violence, you could say, that, has, uh, uh, that is not, certainly not good for the economy. No, not at all. We're, we're, we're certainly experiencing that. Well, I, I wanted to, um, one thing, I heard, a very interesting comment I heard um, in discussing um, our response um, to that attack was the director of the 9-11 Commission, Philip Zellico, saying that the best test is not whether an attack is prevented, but what is the response to the attack. So we've already, we've demonstrated our response, or the, the government has demonstrated a, re a response to the attack, as we talked about already in terms of war terms, um, that the uh, we're not... Uh, processing a, a legal uh, culpability of various parties. I mean, we have, we've rounded them up. Uh, there's not been a willingness to have that trial appear in any particular venue uh, in this country. Um, but what we've done is we've, we've replaced a uh, judicial proceedings with, a, with drone extrajudicial killings which the whole world is watching, which, it, of course, we, I'm not even getting to the collateral damage of that, but just the fact that we're, we're dealing with, um, we're changing up the whole democratic due process with an extrajudicial sort of remedy. And that, Cecilia Lynch, I, I don't know if you would like to uh, address some of that as well before we go into the full-blown, I, I mean, the cost is looming, but, um, but go into those kinds of um, 
the the uh, hazards of that? Well, I think that that does go back to, um, first of all, I agree with you, but I also think that it goes back to the question of feeling that we can just control this um, in a way that exempts us from some of the same requirements we're trying to put on others. So that at the same time that we are trying to um, foment or encourage, or we say we are at any rate, um, democracies in other parts of the world and and, and encourage and um, help support um, judiciaries, constitutions, uh, the rule of law, as we call it, in other parts of the world, and um, and discourage um, authoritarian forms of government. At that same time, we are ourselves engaging, we have engaged over the past 10 years in all sorts of measures that are, as you put it, extrajudicial. And, um, and there are many people in this country, again, from the top down, who have uh, made excuses for that and said that it's necessary. Um, but why uh, does anything justify these kinds of extrajudicial processes? And also then how are we perceived by the rest of the world when um, we engage in things that we are telling others they're not supposed to engage in? It's a real problem. And I, I know that it's been discussed many different ways over these last 10 years, but I wanted to know, though, if you could... We could look at, oh, maybe we could save that for the latter portion of this first half about, okay, given given what we've, what trough we've dug in terms of our conduct internationally, then a, a projection, we'll get to the projection in a little bit. Now it's, now about the economic toll here, I I just keep thinking over and over, the, the economists that get me the most excited are the ones that directly address the whole asymmetry of the funding of the terrorist opponent versus the funding of our American uh, efforts to secure citizens. And uh, Professor Scoperdis, I know you'll have a lot to say about this with the work that you've been uh, working, uh, doing with uh, both your the Oxford Handbook, your work with uh, Professor Stiglitz's um, you know, distinguished economic research. Uh, the um, I always I, I look back at uh, this as I was saying earlier this. The Al Qaeda's ability to uh, inflict death by a thousand cuts—that this financial toll, a little bit of money, can exact a, uh, on the the the, the uh, terror side, can exact a huge expenditure on the our civil society side, and um, it's it seems like an actual attack or even an attempt or a rumor or even a natural disaster that for a while might be. Uh, attributed to a terrorist activity, every one of those steps has uh, drained our treasury uh, in very consequential ways. We'll get to the war expenditures, but first about the expenditures amidst civil society, Professor Scoperdis. Well, uh, you cannot uh, eat or consume tanks and bombs and those things. That's one thing that... uh, uh, Defense expenditures contribute to GDP, but contribute in the, on the side of income, but they don't contribute in, on the consumption side as something that can be consumed. It implies, in a sort of abstract sense, that uh, you know whatever you put into bombs and tanks and uh, other uh, weapons and other defense expenditures, then that means that you don't have resources available for uh, consumption you don't have uh, you have fewer resources for uh, uh, from food uh, to automobiles to houses to 
uh, other se to services. So that uh, overall, there is a, um, you might think that the GDP goes up when you increase de defense expenditures, but if the increase in defense expenditures is greater than the in overall increase in GDP, then you are actually worse off overall as a country. So that's sort of from the abstract point of view. There's no social good for uh, the income earned off of developing weapon systems. Yeah, well, uh, there are, yeah. So you have budgetary costs, okay, and, uh, more concretely, you have uh, the money that you put into uh, the defense budget, into the CIA, into the Defense Intelligence Agency, into uh, all the other sort of uh, operations that have sprung up since 9-11. Uh, 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 that means that implies that they are unavailable for other programs uh, at the federal level. And also, or they increase uh, your debt, increases your deficit and your debt that you have. Which so has the, been a central topic. Yeah. So, and and the increased security costs since 9-11 are a major contributor into the increase in uh, deficits and debt since uh, in the past decade. Professor Scaperis, can you speak directly? Your voice is cutting a little bit in and out of the, the broadcast. I don't know if your position to the phone is a little bit different, so we'll just, we don't want to miss a single word okay. you're saying. Well, uh, I don't know. That's good. Uh, is this any better? That's clear. That's great. Okay. So you have the budgetary costs, but then you also have costs that are more indirect. Uh, you have uh, someone, a, a soldier coming back from Iraq who is traumatized, has PTSD, uh, cannot be pro a productive member of society, uh, and not only that, he, uh, he or she has to consume, uh, then go to has psychological problems, can uh, uh, be violent against uh, their own family, uh, they can even commit suicide. Uh, so, and they, and even if they don't have PTSD, some of them have other problems. They have uh, medical problems. So this implies increased medical and social costs over time that add up and will be facing for the next uh, 40 years, 50 years, as long as uh, 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 returning soldiers have the same problem. And I just want to interject that those, some of those, um, the, the maiming of those uh, veterans, it's not always apparent to the, the civilian public here. We don't always... It doesn't register. It's not always a palpable damage, but we there is so much that's happened to these veterans. So it's a the the costs aren't apparent because they're they're um, the extent to which they've been maimed in active combat is not so apparent. So it's it really looms large. The whole medical mental health component of yeah. treating uh, combat active combat veterans. Yeah. So you have, uh, yeah, the, those costs and many things down into the future. Also, it, it implies that uh, uh, even if they are not uh, maimed, if they're not, uh, they don't have PTSD, uh, the skills are, uh, when later come back to civilian life, might not be as high for civilian occupations as they would be, as they because they are trained to be soldiers. And that can um, be a problem as well in the job market later on for them. Uh, you also have what you can call macroeconomic costs, uh, the distortion, I mean, the, the fact that uh, so many resources go into security expenditures, uh, that takes away, because it takes away resources from the rest of the economy, uh, it creates um, other 
macroeconomic distortions and uh, you, you have less, it's like the, uh, someone <coughs> becomes specialized, uh, li- like the example I said about the soldier who doesn't know anything else other than being a soldier, <coughs> might have negative effects in the economy as a whole, and it could have even effects like the current uh, Great Recession and uh, 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 the financial crisis of 2007 and eight uh, uh, could be said it was partly due indirectly to these increased uh, security expenditures that induced higher debt, induced less um, fewer resources for poor people who, instead of getting higher wages, they were getting uh, subprime mortgages and so on and so forth. So, um, Joe Stiglitz, uh, the economist at Columbia, and his collaborator, Linda Barnes, uh, had uh, a book in, published in 2008 called The $3 Trillion War. And they, made, uh, they estimated the cost of the Iraq war alone to be $3 trillion. Now, that's not paid at once, but over time, including both the budgetary costs of the time every year, but also uh, the projections they made into the future for all the future costs that are induced by it. Three trillion dollars, that's about uh, 20, 25% of U.S. GDP. That's huge. Yeah. and That's a lot of opportunity costs there. Now... They have in the, the handbook of the economic of the Oxford handbook of the economics in peace and conflict. They have updated their estimates, and uh, their estimates are from four, four to six trillion dollars. So uh, the costs are going up. Uh, even uh, uh, the three trillion dollars was considered a conservative estimate. Now that's no longer uh, that's at uh, uh, you know below the lowest estimate. And that's have. just. Professor Scopers, and that's just Iraq. We haven't even talked about the Afghan. Yeah, actually, they include the Afghanistan war in okay. this latest okay. estimate. But the cost of Afghanistan war was lower before, but now it's becoming... The it's opening up. up. And now, just one moment. I just want to remind our, those listeners who've just tuned in, uh, you're ta- we're talking with UCI political science professor Cecilia Lynch and UCI economics professor Stergios Scopertis. Professor Scopertis is now speaking to the economics of the post-9-11 situation. You were saying then about uh, Joseph Stiglitz's work with now attributing about a 4 to $6 trillion cost to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yes, that's right. And that does not think that those are the costs to the U.S. They, incl- they do not include the cost to Iraq and Iraqis or Afgan- Afghanistan and the Afghanis. So uh, uh, how do you... And uh, th- th- there are problems in uh, estimating the costs also. There are sort of cross-cultural issues. For example, the value of life in uh, the U.S. is uh, attributed is, is a cost. Uh, now, if you were to uh, measure the cost, give the same number that you give to an American life to an Iraqi life, and there are estimates of uh, Iraqis who access the so-called excess debts in Iraq that are over a million dollars, a million individuals, then the huge the the, the cost for Iraqis in Iraq would be huge then. And um, also the displacement and destruction and everything else. I'm sorry, so, uh, Professor Scoberis, could you clarify what you meant by the, the, the relative or the comparative cost? You're talking about the Iraqi one million 
uh, population affected directly by the war. And I'm not sure I got the comparison with American um, well, value. Uh, no, I, I was just saying, <laughs> making comparison across country, comparisons across countries. For example, in uh, uh, Stiglitz environments have um, uh, attributed to, to American soldier deaths. They give a tag of, say, six, five to, to seven million dollars. I mean, okay. Of the value of a life, you know, there is, I mean, there are huge controversies about this. But anything. I guess. Uh, but uh, that, that, that's a way of tra- trying to provide, uh, to quantifying also that uh, the fact there are people getting killed. I mean, and that has a cost. Uh, uh, but, but, um, uh, <laughs> but for, uh, is an Iraqi life worth less than an American life? So you're saying six uh, to... So, so uh, well, no, no, of course not, uh, but, but uh, uh, traditional estimates of this would say, well, it depends on the uh, earning potential of Iraqis, which is much lower of, uh, of uh, Americans. And, uh, so. Anyway, so, so I'm saying is that trying to estimate, uh, if you were to use the same numbers for the cost of life uh, in Iraq for the, that you use for the U.S., the, the, the cost to Iraq would be huge. Indeed. Afghanistan. Uh, just from uh, estimated from the value of life. Anyway. Professor Lynch, did you want to comment on some of that, the ramifications for that in an international uh, dyna- political dynamic? Well, I think that um, I think that um, Sergius's accounting of both the direct costs and indirect costs is really, really important. And um, uh, I think one of the things I would like to add is that these costs that have to do with the wars. Um, spill over and relate to uh, indirect costs associated with um, the the sort of mess that we have ourselves in at times on um, civil liberties or the contradictions in promoting democratization around the world, even things like um, our attempts to promote humanitarianism around the world. I'm thinking of um, indirect costs to a degree of the global war on terror, if we expand this to the global war on terror, uh, on uh, humanitarian aid and collaboration in different parts of the world. And if we even take a situation like Somalia today, um, one of the reasons for the U.S.'s support of a very weak transitional government um, has been that it didn't want to uh, support an Islamist government, um, the previous Islamic courts, um, but also that the U.S. has uh, tried very hard to um, control uh, what happens in Somalia with, with absolutely no success. And so when we have something today that we're told is an immediate famine, in fact, the roots are much uh, deeper, and part of the problem with uh, the global war on terror is that on the ground, sometimes in uh, religiously plural societies and Muslim majority societies, um, a lot of Muslim groups have been seen as suspect, and uh, the U.S. government and its partners in humanitarian aid have been unwilling to work with a lot of groups on the ground. And in places like Somalia right now, that's coming back to bite us um, and to haunt us because we're unable to have the channels of access that we want to have because we've been typecasting large numbers of groups 
um, in ways that are far too simplistic. Professor Lynch, um, so these are also costs, in other words. We all of a sudden want to help with uh, the humanitarian crisis in Somalia, but we've been undercutting ourselves um, over the past number of years in terms of being overly suspicious of a number of groups on the ground that could have had access in and out of the, of the country. Do you, Professor Lynch, um, given the, the, the recent sorts of uh, policy decisions made in the Obama administration, do you have any pause for hope in redirection of uh, these expenditures for these indirect costs um, if, for in the next 10 years? Well, there are some things that the Obama administration did immediately regarding uh, humanitarianism, um, some of them having less to do with the global war on terror. For example, uh, reversing the Bush administration's uh, banning of uh, or, or discouragement of contraceptive uh, devices in the war on AIDS, for example. Um, but there are other things that I think the Obama administration has uh, dragged its foot, feet on, and some of that is that it's inherited quite a complex of um, direct and indirect policies that make up this thing, um, this, this sort of behemoth that we call the global war on terror. And um, the Obama administration um, has not dismantled all of these uh, kinds of policies. I know that there was tremendous excitement, at least in the places um, that I was traveling to um, in 2007, 2008, about Somalia. the possibility of Obama uh, coming to power. And certainly after he um, uh, won the presidency, there was also tremendous excitement. But I think that some of that is beginning to be on hold because of um, the continuation of these wars, uh, the continuation of drone attacks, um, the uh, continued killing of Afghan and Pakistani civilians, um, the lack of trust um, in some potential local partners, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that there's still some goodwill out there, but I think that the Obama administration needs to do more to dismantle more of these components or call into question more of these um, tentacles of this global war on terror that actually are not helping its foreign policy. Well, I, we need to wrap up this portion of the program so we can get Reverend Whitlock on um, for the latter. It's not even going to be the half of the latter third. Um, but I would like for either one of you, if you wanted sort of to wrap up in a, in as as um, you can, it's, a, it's such an unwieldy question to sort of project, but whether you think based on the trends that are in motion now, do what do you, do you see? Anything hopeful for how we can engage in this world for the next 10 years post 9-11? And then we need to wrap it up for, for the next portion with Reverend Whitlock. Well, uh, it's a big one. I, well, it's not even one, fair. Uh, are you asking Cecilia? I'd or, like for uh, both of you to, so, well, um, to yeah. see whether well, you have... Well, uh, the, one of the issues, I mean, I'm a bit pessimistic because uh, Cecilia mentioned about Obama, the Obama administration really following many of the policies of the Bush administration on this. And one main reason is the constraint is that uh, the 
military industrial security complex that uh, President Eisenhower had uh, warned against is now in full uh, sort of expansion mode. He has tremendous political power. It, uh, it's, uh, it's very difficult to go against it because they have now, uh, they can always justify and say that you are not uh, exactly a traitor, but uh, you are uh, unpatriotic if you don't fund them. Security is the trump card, the highest uh, in the deck. So it, it's very difficult now to any, for, uh, I mean, and that's why uh, so much funding goes to them. So, and even in the midst of such a budgetary crisis in other dimensions, there uh, there is very little willingness to cut in that direction. And that's sort of uh, indicative of uh, the direction things are going. And uh, uh, the only way is that if there are other organized uh, interests and political forces that could try to reverse that, there are some. But uh, at the moment, they don't seem to be uh, very strong or very influential. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Scopertis. Professor Lynch, just a, a minute or two, and then we'll, um, we'll break shortly for, uh, uh, to get, uh, a professor, get Reverend Whitlock on. You were going to wrap up what you think, what your hope is in the next 10 years, what is, is plausible. Well, first of all, I think that um, we academics are are trained pessimists, so it's um, becomes more difficult thinkers. to uh, deal in the realm of hope. However, however, that said, I think if we do look simply at um, domestic policies and reactions, um, it 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 does look relatively uh, pessimistic. But I do think we need to look at those kinds of groups on the ground in various parts of the world that are um, trying to understand more the complexities of uh, different kinds of people um, and understand more um, the historical context of uh, different kinds of belief systems, different kinds of religions, etc. And um, that we do have this kind of yin and yang going on since 9-11 of openings to the world and then wanting to return to a simpler time. And I think the more that we can push the um, the uh, the actions toward understanding and learning and breaking down us-them dichotomies, the better off we'll be. Well, I think that'll be a good seg for uh, going into that religious realm uh, in the next half of the show. I want to thank uh, both of you. Uh, Cecilia, please stay uh, Stay with us, Sterios uh, Skaperis. Thank you for being on the show. I'll, we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Take care. Thank you very much, Sterios. Okay. Thank bye. you. Bye-bye. Well, uh, well, oops. Um, we'll have to call in uh, the uh, others uh, here in a minute. Um, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. I'm trying to get a hold of Reverend Whitlock. I think he was trying to call while we were running a bit over. 
<clears throat> excuse me, on our interview with our illustrious economist and political scientist from UCI, we may just have to carry on with. Um, without him, we'll uh, hopefully get him on another program in the very near future. It was going to be very rich with his content. Um, but we do have, nevertheless, Professor Cecilia Lynch with us, whom, as I said, has uh, qualified herself marvelously <clears throat> with her investigation of the religious realm in international uh, politics and international relations. So I want to welcome you back. Professor Lynch, you're still with us, are you not? I am. Okay, great. Um, and I know you are also familiar and have done some some sorts of work alongside Reverend Whitlock, so I'm, I really am sorry that we weren't able to have him join us today. Um, I wanted to uh, bring up where we uh, left off with your lovely um, refrain here about the in the ground, um, you know, investment of the the goodwill uh, around the world to help us get a clear understanding of what is really going on. And uh, you were talking about that in financial and political terms, and we can talk about that in religious terms. And uh, let's start by talking then about some of the many paradoxes that you've uh, un, um, uncovered in your work. And, and you had a lovely anecdote about uh, your traveling uh, with a, a couple of women sporting the burqas, and you had uh, many different assumptions about whether or not you could be, how, how proximate you could be with them, and they had some interesting things to say about your comportment. Do you want to start with the, the host of paradoxes about which we're learning post 9-11 and uh, in that encounter and many of the other encounters and many other paradoxes? Um, well, sure. I mean, this was an incident that took place in eastern Kenya and um, uh, along the coast in Mombasa, and I was interviewing some um, Muslim women human rights activists and taking um, some public transportation from one place to another and uh, sat next to a couple of women uh, wearing a full uh, head covering, face covering, um, and body covering, and um, their eyes were exposed. And as we were chatting, I took off my sunglasses, and one of them said, well, why do you cover your eyes? <laughs> you have nice eyes. And I realized that this sort of continued to explode one's notions of uh, why people cover certain parts of their bodies and what are the uh, connotations associated with that and that we should never have rigid assumptions about otherness. And um, it is, I, I do hope that if uh, Reverend Whitlock can't join us now that, that he will be able to later because I know that he's been involved in a lot of activities both in Los Angeles and Orange County um, and could speak very richly to these kinds of issues. Indeed. Um, but basically, my own take on religion is that we need to look at it more in terms of how it is practiced in different places, times, etc., and um, then, then look at it in terms of dogma, that all Muslims act one way, all Christians act another way, all Jews act another way, all Buddhists act another way, um, that sort of thing, because that is really taking us down the wrong path. It also encourages more of the us-them kind of attitudes that um, we see uh, happening all too easily 
in the global war on terror, not just in terms of religion, but in terms of ethnicity, in terms of parts of the world, etc. Um, so that we do have uh, events that are exploding our understanding of us, them. Um, the Arab Spring, Summer, and now Fall is part of that. And that's not just about religion, of course. It's about an entire area of the world that's been typecast in particular kinds of ways. Um, but on the religious front, um, the typecasting can happen um, in, you know, on the part of anybody and about anybody. Um, you know, Christians have also been typecast as well as uh, certainly Muslims in this country and in many parts of the world. And um, to the degree possible, we really do have to work toward um, pulling back from those kinds of things. The current debates about Sharia in the U.S. are, you know, border on the ridiculous at times. And um, again, this idea that that there is one thing that um, all Muslims want, and it is Sharia law, and that Sharia law is one thing. Um, all of this is is um, incorrect. And again, it goes back to the point that we need to understand that we're living in a complex world. And do you see that that um, that black and white depiction of your Muslim? It's you're advocating for Sharia law. Is that is that that's uh, perhaps replacing other kinds of um, sort of black and white racial relations? Um, you know, both uh, in, uh, domestically and internationally. It's just sort of it's the Maybe new it's the new flavor yes well no i mean this is the new flavor of you know them and oh, us kind yeah. of thing and that versus you know there was there were people um there there's race relations that were creating black and white relationships domestically and now sort of this now we can sort of demonize uh islamicists in this country and and be and around the world that sort of takes the need for um, demonizing another sector earlier. This, this is the yeah. new... And, I mean, on the international plane, John Esposito of Georgetown has argued that the demonization of Islam uh, replaces the demonization of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Um, it, and, you know, I want to emphasize that it's not just Islam, that um, there is sometimes a reverse phenomenon about either Christians or Jews, um, that everybody's the same. Um, but, in fact, that um, these things are much more complex. And one of the things that I think Reverend Whitlock could probably speak oh, to yes. experientially, but I can certainly speak to in terms of my interviews, is the numbers of interfaith groups that have, have been going, in many cases, for a very long time, but have um, had a lot of new purpose and new life after 9-11, um, to try to show, you know, reach across the aisle, reach across congregations, um, to show that people can work together, that um, there is mutual tolerance in the world, and to try to overcome some of these us-them us distinctions. Well, is that what you saw at the One Light Commemorative Forum in Los Angeles, uh, September 10th, last Saturday? I did um, attend the One Light Commemorative Forum um, on the steps of City Hall, and that clearly was the purpose of um, that particular um, interface uh, commemoration of, of those who died on 9-11. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of that was happening all over the country. Um, 
uh, and all over the world, in fact, um, on that anniversary, um, in commemoration of that anniversary. Certainly at this particular, at that particular commemoration, um, there were leaders from all of the major faith communities and the Los Angeles Interfaith Council. There was also um, Mayor uh, Viragosa of Los Angeles um, and a few other politicians there, and readings were done from um, all of the major, by all of the major Abrahamic faith traditions. Um, so we, we have a kind of almost two-tier um, interfaith kinds of organizations. One is a lot of conversation between Christians, Jews, and Muslims, um, the three major Abrahamic faiths, but another is uh, much broader kinds of um, interfaith organizations that include Hindus, Buddhists, um, traditional uh, uh, religious believers um, and adherents and leaders. Well, that must have been an amazing sit, uh, whole setting there. Um, and I, I, I really, it is a real miss. I don't. Um, I think having run over in the earlier interview, and I, I don't have the capacity with just one of me and not having an engineer to uh, take the incoming call. I'm sure that was Reverend Whitlock. So we don't have a chance to. Um, can't, I can't throw all the switches with my mic on and that kind of a thing. So um, I'm, we may just have to make this another half show going on um, in the future. But I, I, what I was intrigued by um, in many of the commemorative discussions over the last week, there's a rabbi, Brad Hirschfield, uh, an Orthodox rabbi who's written this book. And I mentioned that to you when we were preparing for some of this, uh, Ms., uh, Professor Lynch. Uh, his his title, his latest title is, You Don't Have to Be Wrong for Me to Be Right, Finding Faith Without Fanaticism. And I guess that's, that's getting at the dogma that you're trying to uh, look past in our practice of religion. Um, can you Can you talk to either more of the paradoxes or maybe more more where the practice um, can take us. Well, I think that there are a couple of things in, in terms of um, the rabbi's book. There is a long tradition of religious pluralism, and um, relig- and theologians debate whether um, allowing tolerance or, or believing in the good of another's religion requires one still to believe in the superiority of one's own religion, etc., but I think um, the the rabbi is obviously making a very good point that nobody has ultimate truth. Um, one of the points that was made by um, Meyer Hatut, who is um, at the Islamic uh, Center of Los Angeles, um, a well-known uh, Muslim leader in Los Angeles at the One Light Ceremony, was that... God belongs to no religion, that all religions belong to God. And, and he received quite a bit of applause for that, that, that um, you know, God belongs to no individual, that all individuals belong to God. And obviously one has to be a person of some faith to agree with components of that. But his point was simply that um, nobody has the complete truth here and nobody has a purchase on um ultimate truths or ultimate deities or um, anything like that. Um, And so these paradoxes, I think, 
are real. Um, I think that people are working out on the ground in many ways. They're working on um, particular kinds of issues that have to do with human rights or humanitarianism. Um, For example, in Kenya, again, a lot of Christians are coming together with Muslims to support Muslims against uh, deportations of Muslims that the Kenyan government is undertaking as part of the global war on terror. Um, that's one thing. In other forums, uh, there's a lot of interfaith work that is problematic as well, but interfaith work on um, on malaria, on HIV-AIDS, on, on things like that. Um, there's interfaith work simply to try to understand different people's belief systems or how they're enacting them at any given point in time. But all of the interfaith work also kind of assumes that people just adhere to one faith. And I think another really um, interesting and also important um, fact, in fact, and trend is that there are lots of people who combine different faith traditions. Um, a lot of people in post-colonial societies are not simply Christian or Muslim, for example. They might be, they might combine Christianity with um, traditional practices, traditional rituals, traditional beliefs. Um, in Orange County, our student body at UCI, um, I've had students who are both Buddhist and Christian, or both Christian and Muslim, or almost any combination you can think of. And so how people work this out um, on a daily basis um, and, and, you know, experience conflicts in doing that. But I think that also understanding that that happens all around us um, can help us break down some of these um, rigid understandings of uh, religion. Thank you very much. When, so that's what you mean by the, um, the, the practice is, is uh, the interfaith experience, the interfaith outreach, the interfaith involvement um, of these various religions. That's part of the practice. That's part of the practice. Part of the practice are these forms of religious hybridity. Um, and part of the practice is that you've got a huge spectrum of, of ways in which Islam is enacted, a huge spectrum of ways in which Christianity is enacted, a large spectrum of ways in which Judaism is enacted in the world, and um, that we can't simply, uh, you know, equate all Muslims with a particular form of Sharia, uh, for example, or all Christians with um, the um, horrible uh, bombing in Norway and, and shootings in Norway a couple of months ago, you know, that, that we can't, that there are all of these ways in which those kinds of attempts to oversimplify get messed up if we just start looking around us in the world and observing um, how people actually enact their beliefs. Well, thank you. Um, and I'm, I have just a thought about um, this, this kind of interfaith um, and this practice uh, changing more over time. It's, I'm, I'm just wondering if it's the way I, I sort of see how homophobia is sort of gradually kind of reside, receding that that I think younger generations that have now uh, been exposed to more hijabs um, and to more, um, you know, the presence of more mosques, there's, there's I think, just sort of more exposure uh, in our society would it be a comparable kind of 
of a, a receding of antipathy toward things of other religions as young people uh, grow up and become very unflappable and very uh, they're not they're not as religious struck as maybe their their older counterparts might be. Well, I think that 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 would be the ideal. I think, in fact, these things never happen in a linear uh, way. And so we do still have a lot of prejudice, a lot of fear about difference that um, is sometimes organized and uh, will try to strike back um, and say, no, these uh, certain ways of belief are wrong, or these are things to be feared, etc. One would hope that exposure will, over time, um, help. And again, it does go back to our living in a very, very globalized world and our needing to understand the complexities of that world. Well, I thank you. I know there's so much more that you want to say, but uh, we've run even over the 10 o'clock hour right now. That's in the background with some little... Uh, FCC kinds of uh, emergency uh, bookkeeping, so I hope that I could screen most of that out. But we do need to uh, give uh, my next uh, the next host on the show his due, and I thank him for giving me this chance to run over. You've been listening to KUCI eighty eight. You are still listening to it. KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, I'm afraid that's going to have to wrap it up. And I hope, Professor Lynch, I know you're on sabbatical this year, and I know you're traveling to Denmark twice in the next short while, as well as other places while you're on sabbatical. But I hope that I can have both of you come and talk to uh, the topic of the post 9-11 9-11 religious realm uh, with the kind of literacy both of you have and so so special that you can share there that um, I thank you for coming on today's show and I hope you will uh, be available for an, another round on the program. Thank you very much, Claudia. Well, it's been very rich content. I thank you very much. You've done such great work around uh, UCI and way beyond uh, Orange County and we have you to thank for that. Good. Have I hope you have a a, a very productive and satisfying sabbatical. And thank you for being on the show today. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, that's it's time for me to turn this over to George Rosales. He's been so patient with me. Two straight weeks of running way over. He got a station ID. Uh, we were just talking to um, Cecilia Lynch, political science professor, in our discussion of the next 10 years post 9-11 uh, in the religious, social, and economic realms. I'm going to turn it over now to George Rosales who's got a hat, and he's got lots more than that. So take care, all. See you next week. We've got a a program with uh, the Alzheimer's Association in advance of their all-important annual meeting uh, at the end on September 30th. We'll learn a lot more about some of the latest in that area. Thanks a lot for joining us today. (music) 